I could open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. You know, when we started this series of messages, um, my intent was that we would come back to themes in Romans. Not that we would particularly do a verse-by-verse detailed exegesis of every single word. As you all well know, I, I, I'm capable of doing that, <laughs> one word at a time, you know, forever. But, um, but I wanted to bring us back to Romans as a platform, a foundation, for explaining the message of salvation, the message of redemption. And to use Paul's own outline to bring other passages of Scripture to bear as we look at the whole teaching of the Bible on the subject of God's plan of redemption. Because, unfortunately, many believers only have a part of the picture. And they don't see the whole panoramic purpose that God has in mind. And consequently, we lose out on a lot because we don't know to trust God for it. We don't even know it's available. And like next week, we're going to be introducing the theme in some depth of justification by faith. And we're going to be looking at Second uh, Corinthians 5 for a portion of that message because there's a great passage in Second Corinthians 5 that talks about what justification by faith means. And in many of, other, of the other of Paul's letters and of the New Testament letters, James and John and, and, and the Gospels, they had other purposes in mind. Most of the letters of Paul and, and even of the letters of John and, and other letters had a specific problem they were trying to correct. The problem with the Galatians was, after coming to Jesus Christ by faith, they thought they needed to go back to Judaism embellished with Christ and, and keep all the Jewish legalistic rules and that would make them spiritual. And Paul wrote that whole letter to talk to them about the relationship of Christ and the law and their freedom in Christ. And that letter focuses on that. The Corinthians were pretty excessive in a lot of areas and Paul wrote them to, to balance out their excessiveness. The Ephesians were struggling with issues of spiritual warfare, and Paul wrote that letter to help them deal with some of those aspects, to know who they were in Christ, and, and what an important, powerful, transforming life they had to overcome the powers of darkness, because Ephesus was a hotbed of occult and demonic activity and, and temple worship that was of, of the uh, occultic variety. But when Paul wrote Romans to a church he had never yet visited, he intended to give his gospel message in, in successive, systematic, outlined form. He said, I want you to know my gospel. I want to explain it to you. I want you to see clearly God's plan of salvation. And so in Romans, he does what he does not do in any other book. He specifically takes the plan of salvation and he addresses it part by part by part, starting out by showing us how sinful we are, our lost condition, and then proceeding to explain how Jesus 
is the solution for every problem that we have. Every area, every weakness, every dysfunction that has been caused by sin, Jesus has a specific answer. And Paul lays that out so clearly for us. And that's really what I want us to get together as we review again, not so much the book of Romans, but the plan of salvation. Using Romans as a foundation to understand how God has answered in Jesus Christ the most difficult questions of our life. This morning we come to this transitional moment. It's in 320 and into 321 and 22, chapter 3, verse 20. This is his summary on sin, because by works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the only thing that the whole background of Israel, the whole Old Testament has done till this moment in time, is simply show us how miserable we are. It's not that God wasn't alive in their midst. It wasn't that they didn't have relationships with God. But the bottom line of the whole revelation of God in the Old Testament was to bring us to the awareness that we really, really need a Savior. We are really broken. You know, and I don't mean broken in the sense of humbled and crushed. I mean broken like we're defective, man. We, we, are, we need to go back for warranty repair. We're in trouble. And, and that's the summation of the law. And then he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified as a gift by His grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is turning a corner here. And he is going to begin now to expound for us how Jesus solves every problem that sin caused. And so what I want to do this morning, rather than going in depth in any one of these verses, is I want to go back and review. And, and this will be, for some of you, kind of old hat. You know, you'll say, man, I've heard this stuff before. If that's your feeling... Okay, don't get bored, get glad, because that means it's stuck. And if you say, man, I've never heard this stuff before, then my question for you is, if you've been coming any length of time, where have you been? But the truth of the matter is, spiritual truth is hard to hang on to. Listen to me, because it's true. Spiritual truth is hard to hang on to. Jesus told a parable about the sower. And he said, no sooner does that seed hit the ground than the devil's coming along to, to snatch it away. He does not want it to take root in our lives. Have you ever wondered why, you know, you hear something on a Sunday or in your Bible study, devotional time, or, or in, your, in your discussion group, and you say, man, that, really, that, that is so impactful, that is so powerful. And then about a week later you think, what was it that really gripped me? I can't even remember. Have you ever had that experience? Uh, I see a lot of uh-huhs, you know. You have. Because spiritual truth is hard to hang on to. We have an enemy who wants to make sure we don't get it. So if you haven't heard this before, 
grip it this morning. And if you have heard it before, praise God that it's sticking, because that's important. I want to go back just a moment and talk about, uh, remind us what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, because I'm going to show us together how Jesus Christ has handled every single component of those consequences. You remember in the Garden of Eden, God had said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will surely die. And Adam and Eve were tempted to doubt that. And so they ate, and as far as they knew, they were still breathing, they were still walking, they were still talking. They didn't know that anything had happened until God came looking for them. Actually, they knew probably instantly because no sooner than that happened than they started looking for a way to cover up. And it wasn't their bodies they were really trying to cover. They were trying to hide from God because they knew that that something terrible had happened. Friends, they died that day. Remember that we are made of three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Remember that the spirit is that part of us that communicates with God. Remember that the body is that part that communicates here. I'm, I'm communicating with my body. See, I'm gesturing. And that's what you see. And God sees my spirit. And in the middle of those two vehicles, I have myself, my identity, my personality, my mind, my will and emotions that influence the way my body acts and the way my spirit acts. And God intended me to be a living, whole person, a spiritual being, a physical being, living in His presence, enjoying His fellowship, walking with Him, everything in harmony. And the day that Adam and Eve sinned, their human spirit died. It just died. and They had no more connection with God in a spiritual sense. There was no more union there. Now, it didn't die in the sense that it totally disappeared because it's kind of still in there. In fact, they, what they didn't know is they exchanged God for the devil and they became connected to the, the kingdom of darkness in their spiritual nature. And now they were being influenced and open not to the influence of God by his spirit, but to the influence of Satan by his spirits. So they became under that subtle influence. And so they died spiritually. The other thing that happened is they also had immediate as well as progressive damage to the mind and the will and the emotions. What I mean by that is they immediately began to think wrongly. And also, whether they knew it or not, their will became in bondage. And this is the problem with sin, friends. People without Jesus Christ are in bondage to sin. That means they cannot consistently produce any kind of righteousness. It's arguable that they can't produce any true righteousness at all. Isaiah says all of our righteousness, the best we can do is like filthy rags in the sight of God. It's all tainted and polluted. But no one can consistently keep it all together apart from Jesus Christ because their will is in bondage to sin. It controls every decision and constantly influences us in the wrong direction. And the emotions go fickle. I mean, we were given emotions because God has emotions. We were made in His image. 
We were supposed to enjoy love and laughter and, and joy and peace, and all those terms are descriptive of feelings. And we were supposed to enjoy that. But the emotions became fickle and topsy-turvy, and they go in all directions, and they're no longer reliable. And for the most part, we're guided by our feelings. Many people are just directed by their feelings. That's kind of what rules them. There was an immediate transformation in the personality of man with sin. And it got progressively worse. See, and that's the point that sometimes we don't connect. But Adam and Eve, what did they do? They started blaming God and each other for the problem. All of a sudden, this first generation, you've got them arguing with each other. But the second generation, what were they doing? Killing each other. I mean, it only took one generation with Cain and Abel, and murder is introduced to the human race. And it wasn't much longer than that than you had you know, cities being built so they could concentrate their energies and efforts and pool their resources and basically have more time to play and enjoy the nightlife. You know, God intended for our leisure, quite frankly, to be spent with him in his presence. And, and he intended for us to have fun. I don't mean sit around, you know, and sing in a choir every time you got a free moment. God intended for us to have fun with him, but, but man had a very different view of leisure. And before you know it, successively, every race, every culture, every people end up departing, and the further they part, depart from God and his ways, the worse they get. You end up with things like the Holocaust eventually. But Hitler was not the first ruler on the face of the planet to, to just eradicate and, and uh, cruelly murder and kill thousands and millions of people. He was not the first one. And he won't be the last. Because that's human nature. We progressively get worse. And in that progress also, our, our, our minds are faulty and we start thinking incorrectly. And we believe that happiness is going to be being in charge. If I'm in control, I'll be happy. If I can have everything I want, I'll be happy. Do you know that's a false notion? That is the essence of the sin problem. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you know what, if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. You're going to, you're going to have this plan. He knows that when you eat of it, you're going to gain something that he's trying to keep from you. You can run your own show. You know why the devil became the devil? Because he wanted to run his own show. God offered the angels apparently an opportunity to make some choices. Did they want to serve him or did they want to go their own way? And Lucifer, the son of the morning star, you know what he said? He said, I know what I want to be. I want to be God. I want to be like him. I want to sit in his throne. I want to run this universe. I want to be in charge. That pride, that arrogance, and that desire to be autonomous, independent, and in control is the essence of sin. Every time you want to run your own show, you are demonstrating your sin nature. Every time you say, hey, I want to be in charge. I want to do my own thing. I want to have it my way. You're merely demonstrating your sin nature. Because God made us to be independence upon him. And some people think that's unfair. They say, why would God make us... I mean, isn't God big enough to let us do, do what we want to do? 
Let me, let me say that again. God made us to be dependent upon Him. Did you get that? God made us. He made us. What do you mean, independent? He made us. He shaped us. He gave us life. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. In Him we live and move and have our being, whether you're a Christian or not. You only take another breath because God gives it to you. Why would we not want to be in dependence upon one in whom we are totally dependent? We can't live without Him. But the assertion to be your own boss, to run your own show, is the essence of the sin nature. And Adam and Eve basically said, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing. And the only way to restore that is to come back under not the dominion of God, although it is that. But see, we fight against that like that's a bad thing. You know, I'm going to have to come back under the authority of God. That's a terrible thing. No, it's not. It's coming back home to be in fellowship with the Father, to have a relationship with Him. So our mind was messed up, our will was locked in bondage, our emotions were all fouled up and became fickle. And then before you know it, the body started to decay. Adam and Eve didn't die physically the day that they ate of it, but they did die. They did die. And we all will die. And eventually we're going to cease from this existence because of sin. But because we're designed to be immortal, the only place for people to go when they've run out of physical life and they're designed to live forever and they don't want to have anything to do with God there's only one place in the universe they can go. That's hell. You know, God did not design that as a place of punishment for men and women. Do you realize that? God made hell for the devil and his angels. But if that's who you want to follow, that's the only logical place for you to spend the rest of eternity. And so that's the end result. And Adam and Eve bought into the lie, and all of these things began to happen to them, that, that brought about a loss of family love, that brought about the destruction of society, that brought about all the misery and all the selfishness and pride and arrogance that began to rule. And the whole Old Testament, friends, tells us the story of God's love in his plan to recover what was lost. Let me give you a three-minute Old Testament survey, okay? Three minutes. Hanging on a few people. They're very important. Steve's checking the watch. Let me know how I do. <laughs> it didn't take very long for man to get so bad that God said, you know what? All the time, all they want to do is their own thing. They want to go their own way. They never have a good thought. If I let this thing go, they're going to be like a bunch of wild tigers tearing each other apart. And when it's all said and done, they're going to self-destruct. I'm going to have to save the race. You know how he did it? <laughs> he called Noah. He said, Noah, you're the best I've got down here. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He called Noah out. He said, Noah, take your family, build an ark, get all the animals, 
a, a pair or multiple pairs from all over the globe, get them on the ark, I'm going to send a flood, I'm wiping this whole human race out, we're going to start over with you, because that was the only way to save the race. Sometimes people look at that and say, well, God was a little harsh there, wasn't he? No, God was thinking about our best interest. There would have been no human race if God had not intervened with a flood, because we would have self-destructed thousands of years ago. Noah got everybody, his family, and all the uh, representative animals on the ark, and God saved Noah. And not long after Noah, God said, now's the time to begin to call out a people that will represent me and reflect my character. And so he, he speaks to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls him out, and he says, Abraham, I want to make of you a great nation. I have a plan for you. Way back in Genesis, God had told Eve, through your seed, I'm going to give you a son that's one day going to crush the head of Satan. Abraham, you're the guy. It's through your family that I'm going to bring this promised Messiah. I'm going to bring this one who's going to bless all the nations of the world. And I want you to come out and leave her, and I'm going to show you a land that will be a land of promise where, where your family can grow into a great nation and demonstrate to the world the grace and glory of God. And so Abraham followed God. And through his son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. Joseph was the guy who kind of saved the, the, the family during the famine. And all the Israelites moved to the land of Goshen in the area of Egypt. 400 years later, when they came across a bad Pharaoh that had brought them into slavery and bondage, you know what? That nation that started out with Abraham's one lonely son Isaac had turned into a nation of about 2 million people. And God said, you're strong now. Talk about working out with a personal trainer. They had a Pharaoh, man, that, that drove them. <laughs> Straw and bricks, <laughs> make the mortar, build the pyramids, whatever. They were hard manual labors, and they had hardened into a mighty force. And God said, you're ready. Let's go make a nation. And God called Moses and led him out, and led him to the land of promise. The Canaanites, had, had, they, had, they had run their course. They were wicked people, just like in the days of Noah, constantly evil, there wasn't much hope for them. God says, I'm going to run them out, I'm going to let you have their land, the land that I promised to your father Abraham. And through Moses, he gave the law, revealed his character, explained how to worship, taught them about himself, so that they could show the world what God was like. But also so that through them, that promised Messiah could come. It wasn't too much longer after that than they wanted a king, and eventually God consented to that arrangement, even though it was kind of a rejection of his authority. Nonetheless, he gave them a king, but eventually he gave them a king, David, who was a man after his own heart. And David became a type of Jesus Christ. David was not a perfect man. He made a lot of mistakes. You can read about him in the scriptures. But he was a man who had a heart toward God. He had a man who loved God. He wanted to follow God. And God said, this is the kind of man I'm looking for, and I'm going to build this kingdom on this guy, and he's going to represent the kind of kingdom that my son is going to one day build. And so God made of them a great kingdom. But they continued to sin, and they continued to turn away from God. And so they went into exile, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, until finally, about 500 B.C., they were allowed to eventually return to Jerusalem in the land of Palestine. But you know what? They were never in charge again. First of all, they were under the rule of the Babylonians and then others. And finally, by the time of Jesus, they were under the rule of Rome. And you know what that was doing? That was creating within them a burning desire for deliverance. They needed and wanted a deliverer. 
They were yearning and hungry. They'd had, they'd had a couple of thousand years of all kinds of history and problems, and now they knew they needed someone to rescue them. And Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, when all the conditions were right, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, invaded human history through a virgin woman, Mary, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and began his ministry among us, God in human flesh, showing the world what God was like. And the scripture says that in that fullness of time, Jesus Christ went to the cross, and on the cross, as the second Adam, he died on the cross, shed his blood, and was buried and rose again to restore at last what Adam had lost. How'd I do, Steve? <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you can understand what God is doing in the drama of human history, you can see that he was working toward a goal. And that goal was to prepare a people to, to, to proclaim his character and then to bring forth a son that would be the Savior and the Redeemer. And the whole point in bringing Jesus was to rescue, redeem, and recover what had been lost in the sin of Adam. That's why the scripture calls him the, the, the second Adam, the last man. He was the one to right what had been turned upside down by Adam and to set it up right again. And the very first thing that happens, friends, when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is that we receive the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of our human spirit alive unto God in what we call regeneration. We are born again. We are regenerated. Our human spirit comes to life to God again, and we are restored in our relationship with our sins forgiven. Now, I want to tell you very clearly that most Christians think that's the end of the story. That's all there is to it. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I come to Jesus. I get forgiveness. I get forgiveness. I go to heaven. Isn't that the point? I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. How do I get to heaven? I come to Jesus. He forgives my sin, God cleanses me, I get to go to heaven. That's the deal, right? Wrong. That's only the beginning. But many Christians never get past that point. In fact, let me submit to you that that's not even the right goal. Now, not too many people come to God for the right reason. I'll tell you that up front. Most people come to God because they're miserable. And they need to be fixed. They're broken, and they know it now. And they need to be fixed. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. When Jesus came to this planet, what did he do? He healed the brokenhearted. He healed the sick. He cast the demons out. And he brought people back into to relationship with himself. There's nothing wrong with people coming to God and saying, I'm broken. But I want you to know that, that God's goal is not simply to just take us to heaven and, you know, just to get our sins forgiven, take us to heaven. God has something else in mind. 
the point of salvation is not to go to heaven. That is the byproduct of salvation. The point of salvation is to be restored into a relationship with God. You know, and most Christians, this is what happens with most Christians. They come to Jesus Christ, they pray the sinner's prayer, they don't want to go to hell, they want to go to heaven, they need help, they ask for forgiveness, they trust Jesus Christ to forgive them, they become born again, and now they think, okay, God has saved me, I'm going to go to heaven, so now I've got to be good, and I've got to, I've got to learn how to be a good Christian, I've got to live for God, that's my goal. And they set out in life to do everything they can to, to thank God and to make him happy to see what a good deal he got. I'm being facetious. But, but you know, we kind of go at it that way. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to live for God. That's what I'm supposed to do now. I'm going to heaven. God's that taken care of. The least I can do is try hard to be a good Christian. And friends, we go about that by, by putting all these rules into our life. Okay, and if, if I... If I, if I read my Bible this much, if I pray this much, if I go to church this much, if I do these things, that's going to that's gonna help me be a good Christian. That's what, that's what it's all about. And God is saying, up the, you know, wait a minute, time out. I redeemed you so that we could have our relationship back. You know, and, and he can hardly break through because we're too busy trying to to do stuff. Imagine that you're going to have coffee with a friend. Okay? And you look at your schedule and say, <clears throat> I kind of like this person, so I think I'll have a 10-minute coffee break with them every day. So you set that in your calendar. I'm going to have a 10-minute coffee break with my friend at work. And, you know, you, you kind of, it's time to start, so you get together and you say, okay, now... When we get together, let's follow a plan. Um, why don't we, first of all, tell each other how much we like each other. And then we're going to tell each other, you know, if, if, if we've hurt each other in any way, we're going to try to clear that up. And then we're going to talk about the things we're thankful for. And then, uh, you know, then we're going to talk about our other friends and, you know, how to help them. And at exactly ten minutes, I'm out of here because i gotta, I got to get back to my life. You know, and so you break this thing down into a ten-minute kind of uh, thing, and you follow this acts formula. I, I adore, confess, thanks, and, and supplicate. Okay, that, that should work for my friend. And I'm going to go through this thing, and in ten minutes I'm out of here because i got to get back to work. How do you, how, what kind of a relationship is that? It's, a, it's, it's, it's weird, man. If you, if you really like somebody, what, what are you doing? Watching the clock to see if you've got your time in? Or are you watching the clock to see how much time you can linger before you've absolutely got to hit the road and get back to work? Which, which is it? If you enjoy somebody, don't you, don't you want to just... And, and do you follow this little formula? Okay, let's, have this, let's go through this deal. Or do you just sit down and say, you know what, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. How's it going in your life? What's on your mind? What's happened to you lately? God wants us to be in a relationship with Him. 
He's not looking for people to be religious. There's a whole world full of religious people, and they're, they're not going to heaven. God is calling us into a relationship with himself. The first thing that Jesus wants to do in your life is to restore us to a relationship with God that Adam and Eve lost. Let's have that walk in the cool of the day. Anybody looking at their clock, forget it. Leave your clock at home. Forget the watch. Let's just talk. How you doing? What's on your mind? Did you see that flower I made? Take a look at that. Isn't that incredible? Let's talk about that. I took a picture of a petunia yesterday afternoon. You know what was so cool about that petunia? It was deep purple. It's got this little white center way down in the inside. And it was backlit. And the light is, it, it looks like the middle of this thing is on fire. And I was just like, wow. I need a picture of that. It's so cool. Here's the heart of this flower that is just glowing at me out of its, you know, dark purple leaves, its petals. It's just glowing at me from the inside. I, I wanted to capture that. And when I get a chance to print it, I'm going to blow it up about this big so I can really see you know, it's because it's so cool. God just says, you know, let's take that walk that we used to have back in the days of the garden. Let's go for a walk. Let's fellowship. Let me tell you what's on my heart. You tell me what's on your heart, I'll tell you what's on my heart. Let's have relationship. That's what God wants. And you know what happens with people who come into relationship with God? When they die, they go to heaven. Because that's where God is. I mean, you're going to live forever one place or the other. But if you're in relationship with God, He wants you to be with Him. It's the prodigal coming out of the pigsty, coming home to the Father's house. Heaven is the natural byproduct of being back in a relationship with God. It's not the goal. It's the inevitable consequence of the relationship. And the whole reason we've got to deal with the sin thing is because God just, can't stand it. And it has to be dealt with. We can't ignore it. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses me and allows for my spirit, my clean spirit, to be reborn because I've been washed and cleansed and I can be regenerated and restored to relationship with God. But you know, that's only the beginning. Because now when I start walking with God, I had this sin problem. The minute Adam and Eve sinned, their will was locked into bondage. Every time they tried to do the right thing, they did the wrong thing. They couldn't, there was no power. They couldn't overcome it. So when God regenerates my, whole, my human spirit, He does so by sending the Holy Spirit inside of me to bring me alive. And then the Holy Spirit is in there, and, and He's saying, Hey, you know what? i got an idea. Why don't you let me take over? My name is Holy Spirit. I know how to do this. You don't have to get all hung up on all the rules. I will come in and I will take over. And I'll tell you. Tell you when you're wrong. Tell you when you're right. Prompt you when you ought to do something. I'll do that for you. You can just take your mind off of it. I'll do it. Would you let me? In fact, I'd like to fill you. I'd, like to, I'd just like to permeate your being. I'd like to, to put my thoughts in your head. I, I'd like to empower your will. I'd like to, 
to give you desires after God's own heart. I'd like to just fill you with my presence. Would you let me have that place? Because Jesus died on the cross to shed his blood, but he also died with respect to sin and was buried and rose again, that I might be freed from the bondage of the law of sin. That, that principle that constantly drags me down. Now I am free. It's what aviation was to the law of gravity, friends. When Orville and Wilbur Wright finally came up with a successful plan that they could fly, and you know where we are today. Do you want to soar? Do you want to fly? You want to be free of gravity? Well, you need a plane or something that will overcome it. And the Holy Spirit says, I will break the power of sin in your life so that you can fly with me. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. He's not talking about physically. You're going to get tired, friends. But he's talking about spiritually. Man, you can just soar. You can go. It's a process we call sanctification. Big word. All it means is that the Holy Spirit is inside, taking over, having, having His way. Bringing us back into relationship with God and enabling us to follow a life that is pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit says, will you let me do it? You don't have the power. You never did. You never will. You weren't supposed to do this. Adam wasn't supposed to do this. I was in him doing it for him. So I want to bring you back to that. You live in dependence on me. Let me fill your life and I'll do it. I'll give you power over sin where you can say yes when I prompt you. And you can say no when you ought to. And you can follow me. And we can stay together on this path. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work on us because he wants to recover for us the damaging effects of sin. You know, there's not a one of us in this life that has not been damaged or scarred in some way. We all have wrong beliefs about what are, what's going to make us happy. We, we all do crazy, silly things. We all behave immaturely. Now, I said, I said in the first service, you know, we have folks here that are anywhere from 100 to, you know, nine or ten or twelve years old in this room this morning. The other ones have gone downstairs. But um, guess what? We're all immature in certain respects. Sometimes I get so frustrated with the way we act. You know, I, I think, please don't take this too harshly, but I, but I think that sometimes the nursery is not just in that lower corner of the building. You know, we're, we just behave immaturely. Sanctification, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, is nothing more or less than making us mature because it makes us look like Jesus. It teaches us when to be responsible, when to just say, you know what, not my problem. It teaches us when to say, I'm sorry. It teaches us to act right, even when we feel wrong. And eventually it teaches us how to feel right when we feel wrong. And God wants to work in us to make us look like Jesus Christ. That's his plan. And the Holy Spirit is there to do that, to recover 
the damaging effects of the mind and the will and the emotions to free the will to renew the mind. How do you, how do you break the pattern of worldly thinking? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in His sight. How does that happen? In the mind being renewed through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit applying it as we learn to think like God, because we don't do that naturally, but the Holy Spirit is there to help us. And friends, He will give help. He will give help. He he can heal our, our damaged emotions. He can heal our wrong thinking. He can recover the, the scars that have happened to our lives and the rejection and all those kinds of things. Every time I say this, I get into trouble. And I, and I want you to know, if you're battling here, I, I care. Please don't hear me wrong. I know that there are genes that have been identified, particularly for bipolar disorder and even for alcoholism and whatever. But you know what? If you've got that gene, that doesn't... That doesn't mean you have to act bipolar or be an alcoholic. Jesus can deliver you. And, and if, you're, if you struggle with depression, unipolar depression, there, there are chemical changes that they can demonstrate are happening. But you know what? Those chemical changes do not mean you have to be depressed all your life. And when I start talking like that, people say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You, don't, you haven't lived where I've lived. You, you don't understand. Friends, I do understand. I understand depression. I've been there. I've spent 10 to 15 years of my life, my early life, in depression. I understand depression. I know clinical depression. Even when I was a pastor, pastoring a church in Tennessee, and, and things happened and just crushed me. And I ended up in the throes of clinical depression. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to every moment of my day have to battle suicidal thoughts where, where you just bombarded with the idea that if you just ended your life, you'd be better off. I understand that. And I know that when I say this this morning that, you know, that some people feel, oh, he's telling me I ought to be perfect right now. Did you hear me? I spent 10 to 15 years learning how to deal with depression, Okay. That's not right now. But I want to tell you something. There's victory in Jesus Christ. There is healing in Jesus. And I will not, I will not lie to you and say every day of my life I'm just, you know, is just beautiful, lovely, wonderful. You know, the sun's shining on my soul every single second. I have days when I wake up and the world looks glum and black and, and everything's in shades of gray. And I think, man, where's the color? But you know what I've learned? No. <laughs> oh, Todd. <laughs> That's what I used to do, brother. <laughs> That's what I used to do. <laughs> no, I've learned to get up and go do what I'm supposed to do. Because the Holy Spirit will empower me to do that. And you know what? The color's there even when I can't see it. And eventually, through obedience, I started to see the color again. It may take a few days sometimes. Sometimes it could take a week or more. I've also learned practically from God that when I wear myself out, I'm more prone to get depressed. Who isn't? If you're totally exhausted and you're not sleeping properly and everything, and it goes on for months and months, 
How many of you get a little down on life? Feel like you're on a treadmill. There's no, where, where's, what's the use? You know, and God says, Martin, wake up. Actually, he says, go to sleep, usually about then. You're wearing yourself out. You need to back off. God will direct you. It, it may take a decade. Okay, so I, I, don't, don't feel like I'm hammering you with this. But I want you to know there is victory in Jesus. He comes to our side. He delivers us from the effects and power of sin. He will do that. And that's a part of that restoration process. We call it sanctification. He also provides for physical healing. But you know, quite honestly, ultimate physical healing. You know when you're going to get ultimately healed physically? When, you, when you're resurrected. When you're resurrected. When you come out of the grave. That's ultimate physical healing. I can't guarantee you that every single person in this life is going to be perfectly healthy. You know, there are some people who believe that. If you really, really trust Jesus, you're going to be completely physically healthy. And one day when you're about 115, you're going to die in your sleep. You went to bed, you know, still, you finished the Chicago Marathon, and, and now you just went to bed happy as a clam, and you woke up in heaven, and that's the way you're supposed to live. You know, that doesn't happen. But God will come to our aid physically. He gives strength to these mortal bodies. I will tell you this, that whatever he's called you to do, he will enable you to do. I don't care where you are physically this morning. If God has a task for you, he will enable you to do it. Robert Jaffrey pioneered three entire missionary regions, China, Indochina, and the Philippines, spending 20 hours a day in his bed most of the time because of a heart condition and diabetes. And God never took the heart condition away and he never took the diabetes away, but that did not keep Jaffrey from doing it. The Alliance would not even send him out as a missionary. And he went on his own. And he showed up in China and he said, by the way, I'm here if you want to use me. I just want you to know I'm here. And so he became one of the greatest missionaries and was never freed from heart disease and diabetes. But it didn't keep him from doing the job that God had called him to do. And that's what I'm saying. God's health is here for you today for what he's called you to do. And one day he's going to bring you out of the ground when the trumpet sounds and you will have a body that will not hurt, will not be dysfunctional, will not fail, because God intended Adam and Eve to live forever, physically, spiritually, in every way, and, and part of the restoration in Jesus Christ, he came out of that grave so that you and I could follow him in the resurrection. Jesus has made provision for the restoration of everything that Adam lost, that we could regain and more as we ultimately end up in the Father's house for all of eternity because that's what He has designed for us. And He is able and He is capable of doing that. Now how does Romans fit into that? Here's another three minute summary, okay? And then, then we're off to the races. And you can ask me any question you want. Go, go get a slice of pizza, taco, or a hamburger and come back and you can ask me anything you want. But... Um, Paul in Romans lays out the whole plan in orderly fashion. And if you could memorize these divisions, they would help you greatly.
Because chapters 118 to 320 tell us the problem. The problem is sin. And then beginning in chapter 321, Paul tells us the solution. The solution is Jesus. First of all, he died to pay for the penalty of our sins. We're justified by faith. And that goes all the way into chapter 5, about verse 11. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, he begins to explain to us, Jesus not only died to pay for the penalty of sin, but he died to break the power of sin. And, and from 5.12 on into chapter 6, he talks about how Jesus has broken the power of sin in our lives. In chapter 7, he talks about the problem of, of religious regulations and rules keeping and how Jesus has died to free us from bondage to the law. Now I want to tell you something. If you hear me this morning saying you can go out of here and do anything you want to do, okay? Please hang on till we get to Romans 7 before you make any changes in your life. Okay, don't, don't go make any big changes right now. Because if you don't know how to walk in the Spirit, it's, it's better that you just stay under the law for a little while longer, okay? Don't go mess up. We're going to get there. Paul says, you know, why am I free from the law? So I can go sin a whole bunch? No, that's not the point. But Jesus has freed us from the law so that we could be married to him and walk in the Spirit. And, and he explains that in chapter 7. And then in the first 17 verses of chapter 8, he explains to us how to walk in the Spirit, how to experience the life of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And beginning in about verse 18 of chapter 8, he talks about how Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death. And you know, you can't really live until you're not afraid to die. And think about that for a little bit. But, but you cannot really begin to live to the fullest until death no longer terrifies you. And when you know that you're safe, free, and home in Jesus Christ, and death is not the end of it all, it's, it's only the beginning of this marvelous vista with God forever. And, and for the believer in Jesus Christ, he that lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, yes, the body's going to stop. Unless Jesus comes tomorrow, the body's going to stop. But you won't. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality, your identity, who you are is going to live in His presence. You won't, even, you won't even hardly notice the transition. When you breathe your last breath on this earth, you'll take in your first breath of celestial air in the presence of God. There's no pause in the action. He that lives and believes in me will never die. And when it's time and the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back, your body's coming out of the ground. You'll be reunited with your body in resurrected glory forever. Everything that Adam lost, Jesus has bought back. And Paul lays it out in Romans, step by step, blow by blow. Here's how Jesus solves this. Here's how Jesus solves this. Here's how Jesus solves this. Look at what a great Savior we have. Look at what a great salvation. Look at how wonderful God's plan of redemption. And so we're getting ready to turn the page next week. We start looking, unraveling the mystery of what it means to be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus on the basis of faith how Jesus solved the problem of the sin history 
and the need to pay for sin. How did Jesus solve that problem? Justification by faith. And we'll take that up starting next Sunday. And I hope that you'll keep this outline in your mind because this is what we're going to explore. How does Jesus meet you at the practical points of the, of the effects of sin? How does he meet you? And how does he heal you? And what he can do? I want to encourage you, if you will, go find yourself something to eat, come back, join us downstairs. Um, we're going to stay about an hour, hour and a half, and just talk. I've got some bang-up questions already on my desk that you've turned in. Uh, if you want to ask some more, you're welcome to them. And we'll uh, just explore these truths together. Father, it has been so good this morning to just reflect on your marvelous plan of redemption and to see how well Paul has pulled it all together in the book of Romans. Father, help us to just just bask in this sunshine of your grace, to just drink it all in and, and to have our, our hearts and eyes opened so that by faith we can lay hold of all that you have purchased for us through the cross. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for what you've done, but so many people don't even know the, the half of it. Please enable us by grace to lay hold of that for which you lay hold of us in Christ Jesus and to experience all that you have intended as we walk with you in victory and in joy. And thank you that you're not done with us. Thank you that you're still at work in our lives. Father, thank you that you're still working on me and teaching me, and working with me, and drawing me to surrender fuller and fuller every day. I give it all to you. Just this moment, I reaffirm, I give it all to you. And you know where you're sitting. Will you just take a moment? Just in your heart, will you just give your life to Jesus completely. I'm not inviting you to be saved. That may be where you are. You may need to be saved this morning. You, you may need to meet him for the first time, but I'm talking to believers who are still trying to drive the car with Jesus sitting in the passenger seat. Will you, this morning, give it all to him? Let him drive so you can enjoy the ride.